Welcome to Explore the Space. We're digging into healthcare issues that matter most. Our guests and conversations mine these issues for perspective and answers. There is a gulf between healthcare and our communities. This is the place to talk about it. Now here's your host, Dr. Mark Shapiro. Welcome back to Explore the Space. I've been circling this episode on my calendar for a while. I am really excited about it. We're going to jump in with General Mark Hurtling here in just a minute, and we're going to do a serious leadership deep dive. Before we jump in, just want to remind everyone, please take a look at the website for Explore the Space, www.explorethespaceshow.com. We've got all of our episodes archived there. It's a really rich place to go and learn about what we've been doing and the amazing people that we've had on the show. The four pillars of the show are there and the about page. You can click on that and take a look. Please feel free to email me, mark at explorethespaceshow.com. I love interacting with my listeners and hearing what's resonating and also hearing about things that we can do better. I'm really active on Twitter at ETS show. So you can find me there and that's a great place to also see what's going on, see what stuff is interesting, see what stuff is trending and be a part of the conversations that we're having there. Please feel free to take the opportunity to subscribe to explore the space on whatever your favorite podcast platform is. Leave us a rating and review as well. That definitely helps drive people to find us and the extraordinary conversations and the really unbelievable people that we've had come and join us. And speaking of the unbelievable guests and the quality of guests that we have, this is going to be fun. General Mark Hurtling is a retired U.S. Army officer. He served for 37 years in the U.S. Army and retired as the commanding general of U.S. Army Europe and the 7th Army. He served in two wars. He served in the Persian Gulf War and also in the Global War on Terror. He basically led every element in terms of personnel size all the way to a field army and After this extraordinary military career that spanned almost four full decades, he made a very interesting transition, and it was a transition that happened really quickly. He moved into physician leadership development, and there are lots of places I would imagine a military officer can go when they leave the military, and he stepped into one that I would suggest is extraordinarily challenging, which is helping to develop physician leaders and grow physician leaders. He wrote a book on the subject, Growing Physician Leaders, which is a book that I would strongly encourage and highly recommend. And now we have the opportunity to have some conversations around how we continue to build leadership, what the core tenets of leadership are. There are a few who know more about this. General Hurtling, thank you so much for joining me. Well, Mark, thanks. That that was an introduction that I can be proud of, but I'm going to unfortunately bust some of your bubbles on why and how I got into this space uh, as we talk about uh, this on your podcast. But thank you very much for inviting me. I look forward to to talking with you as well. The the question that has been on my mind since I first learned about you, it's been over a year, is the same question that I brought up in that introduction though, is you had this incredible career. And I guess maybe this is my own worldview of what happens when you finish with a CV like I would imagine you've compiled. I would imagine you had a lot of people knocking at the door saying, Hey, Mark, we've got some offers for you. Come and take a look. Hey, come check out our shop. Hey, what about doing it this way? What do you want to think about this? Was that the case? And even if it was or wasn't, what what took you in a direction of going towards leading healthcare? Yeah, (laughs) that's a a great lead question, Mark. And and what I'll tell you is, yes, in fact, I did have uh, a couple of organizations approach me about doing things with them. But what I'll tell you is, my wife and I both decided that as it was time for me to leave the Army after 38 years, I wanted to do something different. And, you know, I, 
you see a lot of your peers as a general officer or uh, an admiral who go into defense contracting or consulting. And I didn't want to do that for a variety of reasons, which I won't get into. But I just thought I wanted to do something more exciting. And uh, after almost signing up with an organization in Boston, I was uh, through a series of coincidences and serendipity. I met the CEO of this hospital in Orlando that I am now uh, working for and came to work for it when I grad when I graduated when I, I retired in <laughs> you graduated I like that yeah and it's that's a, a Freudian slip if there ever was one to figure out what I was going to do with the rest of my life yeah and um, they they had an interesting proposal and to make a short story a little longer what happened was when these folks approached me they said they had uh, they had developed this initiative on something they call global partnering. And they had briefed it to a friend of theirs at at our local Disney World, one of the senior vice presidents. And they said, what kind of an individual should we ask to join us to try and drive this initiative? And the, the SVP at Disney said, find a retired general. And of course, that surprised the folks in this hospital. They said, why would we look for, and they basically said, what do you mean, a, a retired doctor general? And I said, no, 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 just a retired general. And it's because they know how to scale, scope and scale large problems. So by coincidence, I met these individuals a week after they were told this. They got to hear me speak and they came up to me afterwards and said, would you be interested in coming down to our organization, take a look at what we do because we're trying to hire somebody like you without even knowing me, without seeing a resume or whatever. I think my initial response was, you know, I'm not a doctor, right? You know, I'm a tanker. <laughs> and they said, yeah, yeah, we know that, but, but we need someone for this initiative. So to make that long story a little bit shorter, I said I would come down to take a look at what they were doing. And when I got here into this organization and took a look around, it was amazing. Some of the things they were trying to do and they were asking me to be a part of it. So I joined the organization in 2013 and uh, started this initiative, which was something called called global partnering. And then they started asking me to do a bunch of other things. Well, by coincidence, again, my office was right next door to the chief medical officer, a guy by the name of Dave Moorhead. And he used to come into my office and we became fast friends. And he would ask me questions about how to take care of some of some of the, uh, let's just put it, disciplinary issues he was having with physicians and how we would handle those kind of things in the military, in the army. So after I would you know, share my thoughts, we finally came to the conclusion that he would teach me more about healthcare if I taught him more about leadership in the army. After a couple more months, he came in one day in my office. He said, you know, for the, about the last 10 years, we've been trying to develop a physician leadership program. And based on the things you've shared with me, he said, you're you're more knowledgeable of this than some of the consultants and some of the organizations we've gone to to help us form this thing. And, and it hasn't been well received in the past by doctors, but we think because of your personality, they'll receive it from you. What he wasn't saying was, hey, you're also a retired general and you'll probably scare the hell out of him. So, so he asked me to put together a program, which I did, and we we started it in 2014, and it rapidly became what we saw a successful event. 
the doctors were getting a lot out of it. We we did something that I called interprofessional, which he didn't want to do based on my experience in the military. I said, hey, if, if you're looking to form healthcare teams and get people to understand each other and, and break down the trust issues that are currently there, then it can't just be doctors. It's got to be doctors, nurses, and administrators. Yeah. And what I didn't know at the time is that's something that the research calls interprofessional. Uh, so as we put these classes together with 50 people in it, uh, that lasted over a period of of uh, eight months. It had 35 physicians of all cults and tribes. It had 10 nurses and five hospital administrators that were learning together. And we were seeing some really interesting cultural changes as they got to know each other and shared things in a very closed environment. So there's a, there's something that you did in that description that to me I think is vital. And I want to get to it more, but it's what you just described is that interdisciplinary work, that interprofessional work. And that is something that in healthcare, we need to continue to to get better at. But before we get there, I'm curious, as you started on that path, as you had an office in a hospital, as you started meeting physician leaders, as you started interacting with hospital systems, first impressions, you've looked at leadership from leading a squad, leading a platoon, all the way up to leading 40,000, 50,000 men and women in uniform. Now you're in a hospital and you're seeing how we do things. First impressions, what were you seeing? What were you saying? Yes, I can build. What were you saying? Oh my gosh, my eyes are going to just roll right out of my head. Why are you doing it that way? I'm really curious about those first takes that you had. Yeah, well, that's a great question. Uh, I didn't explain this uh, because it uh, elongates the story. Uh, (laughs) But what happened was I told Dr. Moorhead, I said, hey, Dave, I can try and put together a program for you. But first, I've got to understand a little bit more about the culture. That's right. And I've only been here a couple of months. So I need to give me a month to take a look around and I'll come back to you and tell you what I think the issues are. So I did that. And when I came back to him, I gave him a couple of briefing charts that he showed to the CEO. And I started as a typical military briefing saying, here are the good things that I've seen. And it was, hey, this is a values-based organization. They're doing very good things for the community, you know, da, 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 da. And then I said, now, here are some of the bad things that I've seen. And I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm I'm stealing myself for this. This is going to be tough, but I'm ready. Yeah. Well, it, and this is where something as a retired three-star general, I've already written the first line of my obituary. I can get away with saying this to important people. And I said this to these doctors. I said, you know, first of all, you guys don't know how to lead. And in fact, it appears based on your training and, and Dave concurred with me on that, that everything that's taught to a physician in med school and in their internship and their residency you take what any leadership ability you actually have and you knock it out of them. Uh, and and it's uh, you come in under the servant leader theory where you're serving the patient. But unfortunately, because of the way medical school train medical schools train doctors to be a godlike creature, you kind of lose the empathy and the humility that's also required uh, as part of leadership. Now, The other thing that I told them is you all don't trust one another. And what I mean by that is doctors don't trust administrators. Administrators don't trust doctors. Nurses don't trust doctors. 
And there's just this overwhelming lack of trust. And that's the bedrock of good leadership. And in fact, what I've since found since then is there's quite a bit of research on that lack of trust and how to how to override it uh, using leadership training. So that those were two main issues. And and then I found out later on, as I did some additional analysis, is the whole approach to problem solving is different. Doctors are short term. Administrators are long term. Doctors look at the instant gratification of solving a problem right now. Hospital administrators will look at long term programs and ways to do business. Doctors want very short meetings so they can get on with things. Administrators will, are willing to have three and four hour sessions where they're knocking things out and never coming to a conclusion. So there's just and there's been a lot of research written about this, too. So all of these things made me conclude that, hey, if we're going to put a program together, it should be for a mix of people. Now, Dave didn't want to do that at first. He said, no, no, he says, I really want to focus on the doctors. And I said, Dave, you can't just focus on the physicians if you're looking to build healthcare teams to solve the problems associated with the triple aim. Because each person within the triple aim, the hospital administrators, the physicians, the nurses, and if you want to expand it, the insurance companies, companies, the policymakers, they all have a piece of the solution. And if you're only looking at it from the eyes of one person, you're never going to solve that problem. So if we really want doctors to lead, we have to help them understand what it means to lead and how you gain a seat at the table so that you not only talk a lot, but you also listen and build consensus because that's the essence of leadership. Hearing those first two points, they land correctly for me. I think that's the right word. They're not easy to hear, but I will say I think that physicians more and more are becoming aware of those gaps that you describe. And mm -hmm. I think that people who are in positions of leadership in medical training are aware of that. And one of the lessons I learned as a medical student is that MD stands for make decisions and that right. we are going to be looked at in the room as a leader, whether it's in a small group at the bedside right. or in a large group running a medical group or running a division or something like that. And we are going to be in that place and we need to build those skill sets. But you're right. We have missed out on generations of physicians who could have been learning these core skills and they're not unique to medicine. They work in the military, they work in engineering, they work in the arts, they work in wherever leadership of a group is needed. They're pretty much universal traits and features. And we have work to do. And I think that that first step, and I give a lot of credit to the team that you're working with in Florida, to be able to not get defensive and to not raise the barriers to say, we are asking for your help. You're clearly good at this. And then when you give them a report to say, yeah, let's be accountable and let's get better. Yeah, well, I, I got to comment on that because it's an important point. First of all, you said you know doctors are trained to make decisions. Yes, but they are also trained to make decisions fast. Yes, and be looked upon as the key decision maker. And good God, don't even question that decision once it's made, because you're the smartest guy in the room. And unfortunately, that's sometimes not the case when you're talk, talking about the healthcare industry writ large. Because some of the problems within healthcare are long term and it can't you can't have an instantaneous decision. You have to do some analysis and research and working with other partners that may not see things the same way you do. Uh, so 
that becomes an issue. The, the other piece that's interesting is uh, I, I'm, I'm selling what's happening now. I'm thinking about what's going on now in the program because the program's been accepted. The first year we did this, truthfully, we asked for volunteers and we had more than the number we could handle uh, physicians who wanted to learn more about leadership from uh, this old retired star general. But what was interesting, there was also a great deal of skepticism. And in the very first seminar we had, uh, I'll never forget about a half hour into it, this physician who I've now since become very close friends with said something along the lines of, what the hell is the hospital trying to make us do? So it generated that that proclamation of a lack of trust. What, what are you guys doing to us? What are you trying to do? And when I said, hey, look, first of all, yes, I am an executive in the hospital, but I'm new here and I'm sort of the guy between the dog and the fire hydrant because I'm, I'm getting wet on both sides <laughs> and I'm not really a hospital administrator, but I'm also not a doctor and I can play the role between the two of you as the interlocutor and the referee. And what I'm trying to do in this course, what I told the guy was I'm trying to make you a better person. And I'm trying to help you be a better leader in whatever you do, whether it's your practice, whether it's your clinic, whether it's your program or whether it's eventually being a CEO of a hospital. I'm just trying to show you some of the elements of leadership that might contribute to you being a better person. There is that reflexiveness is that. that I've experienced myself as a physician leader and I'm a doctor. Right. It's, it's every layer of you don't do exactly what I do. It's you don't do what I do anymore because you're retired. It's you right. wouldn't understand because you've never done this. There, it's really hard to burrow through all of that. It is reflexive. And I would, I would ask too, is that unique to medicine or is that in any really intense sphere where you're doing work of, of a specific type, somebody from outside comes in and says, let me give you some ideas that there is that level of defensiveness. Is that unique to medicine or is that more of a global phenomenon? Well, what I'll share with you is what I know and what I've seen. It is not unique in the military. It is not done in the military. But the reason for that is, is because People in the military get leadership training yeah. from the time they're brand new all the way to the time they retire, as long as they stay in. I mean, I was getting leadership classes when I was a two and a three-star general. But in the other professions that are dis described by certain professional tenets that have requirements to be a professional, based on the research I have seen is, yes. It's like this somewhere in the profession of law. It's like this to a degree in the profession of ministry, in engineering. So any profession that has a specific requirement to contribute to society in unique ways, think they're the only ones that know how to do it and no one else can share thoughts with them. Now, even in the military, what I'd say in the army, there's this feeling of you've got to get input and advice from other people within the army. But there's even sort of a dynamic between the Army and the Air Force, the Army and the Navy, the Navy and the Air Force, where, hey, you don't drive ships, so you don't really know what you're talking about out here on the open water. You really don't, you know, have to attack that hill. So Air Force, don't tell me how you're going to do things. So, yeah, there's still the requirement to break that down in the military. But in the other professions, uh, 
medicine, legal, ministry, engineering, journalism, uh, teaching. There is the, hey, if you haven't done it, you really don't know what you're talking about. You have to break down that barrier to look outside your culture for perhaps new ways to do business. I think it's interesting. What I'm hearing you describe is two major places where we can drive the leadership needle for physicians. One of them is in training, and then one is for folks who are out of training and may have a whole variety of ingrained habits and reflexes that could be counterproductive. And as you were making your decision, you did choose the latter group. Was that a deliberate choice to say, you know what, I'm going to focus on the on the hard-bitten doc who's been doing it for 20 years and does not want to hear from anybody else and doesn't trust anybody and there are plenty of us out there. Was that a deliberate choice to say, I'm going to take the way harder road that's covered in briars and bushes and you know pitfalls <laughs> and quicksand? Yeah, no, it wasn't an active decision. It just happened to be because I was working at a hospital. I gotcha. But but now what's interesting is because of the book and because of some lectures that I give and, and some presentations I've made, I'm now being asked to contribute to other organizations. Yeah. And you say, okay, part of it is what are the dynamics and the culture and the context of the profession? What we're talking about right now is healthcare. But the other thing that I say is there are very few uh, organizations or schools that teach true leadership principles. Um, you know, you can go out and get an MBA and they might have one class or one elective on leadership. And, and now having taken a doctorate business administration uh, course in leadership, it wasn't very fulfilling, to be honest with you. And I, I go to a pretty good business school, but it was more management than leadership. And the dynamics that are required in leadership versus managing an application of power are very different in how you get people to do the things you need them to do and influence them to contribute to the organization. As I'm hearing you talk about contributing and using leadership as a tool to, to get people to contribute, I'm sitting with that for a minute. And the reason is that physicians go into this profession to serve we all go into medical school in a very aspirational mindset. And as you pointed out earlier, a lot of that gets beaten down and that's you're right. And that's the part that needs to be reworked is part of your job in leading physicians. Do you help them seek out not just education about leadership principles and these sorts of things? And the book is outstanding and I want people to read it. Is there a desire to help them seek out that aspirational piece again, that you are contributing to something larger? You, you're seeing one patient and it feels hard for you. Your ripple effect that when you help them get better is something that nobody else in the world gets to do. Do you help people try to recapture that if they've lost it? Yeah. And, and, I, and in fact, I'll give you some data points. Uh, but first, what I want to say is what you've described and that I didn't know. I mean, I, I've practiced leadership all my life and I've learned the Army's method of leadership. And in fact, the Army has a doctrinal manual on how to lead, which is field manual 6-22. If you want to know, you can get it on the Internet if you'd like. But it's based on uh, transformational leadership theory. Now, what I mean by that is transformational theory says the focus is on building an organization where people share their approaches 
and and do their work and lead and influence in order for the betterment of the society and the organization writ large. Now, contend, and I do, that physicians are brought up in their medical training in, with something called servant leadership theory, where the leader, i.e. the doctor, the physician, puts the needs of the follower, i.e. the patient, as a primary requirement. That's servant leadership. Unfortunately, doctors are sometimes pulled away from servant leadership because they're worried about financial obligations, the health of the organization, uh, what they're being told to do, what the government is requiring to do. So they are put in this quandary. And in fact, I, I would contend that's a major reason for the changing of physician resiliency and the increase in physician suicides and the frustrations with the medical field because they have been taken away from what inspired them and why they went to med school in the first place. Businessmen, hospital administrators, as much as I hate to say this, follow something called transactional leadership, where a leader will emphasize either a quantitative performance or a resultant reward uh, gained through their leadership. They, they want to make money. They want to grow. They want to be a better businessman. They want the things associated with running a, a good organization. And what's interesting is I think you probably read my book. It, it, was, it was fascinating to me to find that of the approximately 6,500 hospitals in the United States, only about 230 of them are run by doctors. Yes. That, that, that would be like telling me, okay, in the 20 army divisions you have, only one of them is going to be run by a general. The rest of them are going to be run by civilians who don't understand your culture. That didn't make sense to me. So it's part of the dynamic of culture, what big organizations ask people to do, and the history of what has occurred in healthcare, which I'm more familiar with now, that started in the 1960s where doctors were displaced by businessmen in hospitals. And now the administrators, the hospital administrators, are asking them to come back to help solve the problems. And, and that just all points to the requirement for teams. Uh, if you're really looking at the big problems that are occurring in American healthcare, in my view, and what do I know? I'm kind of a rookie at this. It seems like you need teams more than you need either administrators, policymakers, or doctors acting as individuals. One of the wonderful things about these podcast episodes is it's almost like being an archaeologist. You get to kind of peel away layers and then you find something deep down uh, and I think that we just did that. And what you just described, on the one hand, is a cohort of people who follow one pathway, servant leadership. On the other right. hand, is a cohort of people who follow a different pathway, transactional leadership. That is the definition of tension. There is a central right. tension right there. And what we are looking to do is to some, and this is, again, this is not unique to medicine, although medicine is really feeling it. And I agree with you that this is a major driver of a, a tremendous discontent in our profession. We are in a place now where with people like yourself and others helping us, we can see the tension now. We're starting to understand the tension. Are we ready? Do you feel like physicians? Do you feel like the ground has been prepared? Do you feel like the reconnaissance has been done? Are we ready to start to reconcile the tension? Or is there still work to be done just to understand what we're dealing with? Well, you know, it's interesting to me, again, researching this uh, for a thesis, 
it, it appears it's starting around, oh, I don't know, I, I, I'd put an inflection point probably 2008, 2010, somewhere in that period. There are a lot of organizations, uh, the World Health Organization, uh, AARP, in associated with association with Robert Woods Johnson, uh, IHI, some really good medical exploration into how do we solve the problems that are affecting American healthcare, not just from the treatment of disease, but the access to care and the cost of care. And now, as the American Medical Association has said, uh, physician resiliency as well. So, if you really want to solve those problems. Uh, you have to take a strategic approach. So are we ready for that? I, I think, the, to use a military expression, the battlefield has been prepped, but now it just takes the forces going in there and looking for solutions. And I think uh, starting about 2012, 2013, there's been some real pushes by the EMA, by various uh, physician groups to act actually address the issues, but there are still big problems uh, regarding the elements of the triple aim, well, the quadruple aim now, uh, and how you solve those. And any specific member of the team can't provide a solution. So if we're looking for somebody else to do it without the influence of physicians, and I think that's, you know, you pick up any medical journal today and there's an art, at least one article that says we need physicians to lead. And what I found interesting is finding articles as recently as last year in both the New England Journal of Medicine and the Harvard Business Review during the same month that basically said the same thing about getting physicians to lead. So, yeah, I think we're ready. The problem is, are we prepared? Do we have physicians who understand the intricacies of leadership Things that you don't get from an MBA. I mean, an MBA could certainly help you about the business part of it, but it's not going to help you learn how to build teams that will contribute to the solutions to these problems. One of the things that I liked as I was listening to you was your pronoun choice. I like that you selected we as opposed to you, because that leads me to feel like you feel engaged in this with us. And like you said, we're not going to do this alone. And it is important to have smart and intelligent and engaged people helping on the road. And so the fact that you're saying we, I'm gratified to hear that. Well, you know, there's a reason for that too, by the way, I spent, I'm an operational guy in the military. I was either in operations or in training units throughout my entire career. And one of the great advantages I had as a Colonel was, uh, I was the head of something called, uh, the ops group, the operations group at the national training center in California. And in that, Uh, To tell you a quick war story, in that organization, units would appear in the deserts, in the Mojave deserts, and for a month-long period, uh, the team and I would train them. And every, it would be a mock battle for two weeks of that month-long period. And every 24 to 48 hours, we would stop all action for two hours and hold what was called an after-action review where we would tell the unit what they were doing wrong and how they had to improve and how they had to follow specific processes, systems, and how they had to depend more on different elements of leadership. So we had this this cadre of of a very small team watching everything a 5,000-person brigade did. And every two or three days, we would stop and do these after-action reviews, these AARs. 
as part of that, we became part of the unit. And it was a requirement for my team and I to say, we are doing these things right or wrong. It was never you're doing these things wrong and we're here to help you. You know, we took on ownership of being part of the team. When I started the course uh, at Florida Hospital with the physician leaders, that was a requirement. When the doctors were on one part of the room, the nurses in another, and the, and the administrators were in a third seat as they were having their debates and engagements and arguments back and forth, and it was a free-for-all, I banned the word you and said we always have to say we because we're all in this together. And, and now that's one of the cultural things that I think has taken place within Advent Health, our organization where it's a we environment, not a you or a they environment. It's never uh, those bastards at higher headquarters are all screwed up and we're the only ones getting it right. And boy, us doctors know what we're doing down here in the operating room, but if, if only we could get the executive building in charge. If there's a problem, you got to bring it to the attention of the people who are in charge because that's what informal leaders do. And formal leaders are willing to accept that. That's part of the essence of leadership in good organizations. It's it's. Exciting to hear you talk about it like that because it's just those little things that end up making all the difference. They're so subtle, but uh, you know, as I'm listening to you, I I caught it. I heard that you're saying we, and this is the germ. I mean, that's the that's the that's the seed crystal. That little tweak, that little piece, and that's how we're going to do this. It's not going to be a one eureka moment. It's just going to be this subtle overlay of you know those little bits of glass that. Uh, they, they look inconsequential, but when you put them together, it's a mosaic that will stand the test of time. Yeah. As yeah. we move forward, though, as you're working, you, you've got a couple of years under your belt. The book is done. You, you've built the credibility now. When people ask you, and I'm going to ask you, what are those first levers? Because let's, let's just assume that we're starting from a fairly lower position in, in the leadership ladder. What are those first levers that any group, and this is, I want to reinforce, this is useful for healthcare, but I would argue that this stuff will be generalizable to whatever group sure. that you're in. What yeah. are those first levers that we should be pulling? That sense of unity, that sense of community, that sense of we, I think you covered that beautifully. What else should we be implementing like today? Well, again, I'll go back to the leadership course. What, what we do is it's an eight month long course. It yeah. meets one, one day a, a month for five hours. It's a seminar. And, uh, what we do for the first two lessons. And I think, I hope this answers your question. We focus on the individual, the persons, everybody in the room, and there's 50 people in the room, people's individual character, what their values are, what they feel is important in life, uh, and really a deep dive on who they think they are. But then we also show them you have to match with who you think you are with how other people see you. And so in other words, to use Sun Tzu, a military theorist from, uh, from China, uh, you have to know yourself and know how you're representing yourself to others and how they can share the journey with you. Okay. Now that sounds a little fluffy, but it's not. The next two lessons, lessons three and four, we focus on dietic leadership. How do you lead in lesson three? It's how do you lead one-on-one? -on -one? How do you get other people? How do you influence other people 
to do the things you need them to do for the betterment of the organization. Then in lesson four, which is a big deal for the doctors, they come into this lesson very excited. It's how do you get your boss to do what you want them to do? How do you influence the people who run the organization? And what they find out when they come in is they are also the bosses of someone or some group. And in order to influence the people up the chain from them, they have to know how to be influenced by people down the chain from them. So it's a two-edged sword. In lesson five and six, we talk about how do you take that dyadic leadership, the one-on-one, and start building teams that all have different motivations for success. And how do you put those teams together first as a new person on a team, a new leader? How do you what if you join a team when the team's all together and you're the new guy and they're very suspicious of you? And and if if you're uh, the new gal and you're asking them to do something they've never done before, how do you influence large number of people? And then the last two lessons, which is interesting, we we do in lesson seven, uh, we do a, a seminar on what the organization does for you and what you should depend on the organization to do. And in that lesson, we kind of bring in the the chief financial officer and the marketer and the strategist and the uh, computer guys and the supply folks. And we say, you know, as doctors, you couldn't do all this and still run your practice. So you have to depend on these people. It's like being, I'm a big baseball fan. It's like being a starting pitcher. If you're thinking everybody's looking at you and you're the reason for the St. Louis Cardinals to exist, boy, you better take a look at what's going on in the farm team and how many people are selling hot dogs because they all contribute to your success. Then in the last lesson, uh, we say, okay, you've learned how the organization contributes to you. How will you contribute in the future to organizational success? In order to be a leader, you have to sacrifice. You have to sacrifice your time, your energy, sometimes part of your family life. And and that's hard for doctors to do because doctors are a lot like soldiers. There's no free time. You guys are on call all the time. That's another thing I learned, that you're a lot like I was uh, in terms of not having any personal time because you are part of a profession. So that's kind of the layout of how we design this thing. And then in the middle, I think, you know, from reading the book, <laughs> I also talked the organization in allowing me to do something the Army calls a staff ride by taking our uh, team or the group to Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. And we assign each person in, in the class a role of a Civil War general to play. And we basically we don't reenact the battle, but we do the historical analysis of the battle And we ask each individual in this traumatic, chaotic situation to talk about their person they're representing and what caused them to lead the way they did. And it's a a research study. It's not all that onerous, but they then understand how other people have the same challenges to get people to do the right thing. And sometimes leaders fail and sometimes leaders are toxic and sometimes leaders don't communicate very well and and they don't give information that's needed to the people that need it. And sometimes uh, they don't understand the context of which they're being taken. So all of these leadership lessons and many more that we've studied over the last eight months kind of come to the forefront. And it's easy for the folks in the class to put this together. And that that trip to Gettysburg, that one day trip, 
is an amazing experience for all these folks, just not only from the lessons they learn about leadership, but also what they learn about our history and who we are. And it, it helps them to understand how important each individual is for a team to be successful. You laying out those components, I think, is so important because as I hear them, and having done some leadership courses and been fortunate enough to have had ongoing leadership education, those things all really resonate as being the right work, especially that final phase of being something that is aspirational, understanding how this can become big, understanding the role that we all have to play. And I think that that's really exciting. The way that you craft it for me personally, I was a history major in college and the 19th century U.S. history was what I focused on the American Civil War. I've been to Gettysburg several times to to hear about something like that. <laughs> that, that sounds like an extraordinary experience. Yeah. But I would just say one of the things about physicians and about healthcare that I think is unique. And this is a nice bookend to this conversation is, you know, we talked about how we haven't done a great job of educating physicians for a long time and, and we can accept that. And let's take that as, as, as read. We can also accept that it's rocky to do it and that we have our boundaries and our barriers up and let's take that as read. But what an opportunity we have. We have so many people who are so bright, who are so well-trained, who want to enjoy their work, who want to be of service to the communities around them. They want these opportunities. We have, we have a, a cohort of people ready to go that I would say is unsurpassed in any other industry. We just, we're just barely tapping into that. Would you say that's a reasonable assessment? Uh, that is absolutely a reasonable assessment. And what I'll tell you too, Mark, if I can talk about the research project I'm doing. Uh, well, first of all, I'll share with you, I, I did a practicum as part of my second year of this doctoral course last year. And I looked at the top 50 nonprofit hospitals in the country and what they were doing in leader development, uh, specifically physician leader development. And what I found was that most of them are doing something for their executives and some are doing things for their nurses in terms of leader development, but just a very few were doing physician leader development. Uh, only two of them were doing in, in the style of what I explained, the interprofessional approach. And it really appeared there's this great uh, possibility, as you just explained, of getting more people involved in the team if we just take a little risk and pull physicians in. But you, you need to know how to do it, as, yeah. as you said, because doctors are busy. They don't have time sometimes to take a leadership course because they're treating patients. And that's been a fear of most administrators. They don't want to, you know, interrupt physicians in taking care of their patients. And part of that is because they don't want to affect their, their financial model. But it's required if you really want to get to where we're going. Uh, anyway, on, on my, my final dissertation project, what I'm doing is I'm measuring a couple of, of dynamics of leadership in two different physician leader courses. And the way what I'm measuring, first of all, is the self-reported improvements over a six month long course. And the, the measurement so far that I've seen, I haven't done all the calculations yet, but it appears that the physicians have gone from just believing in themselves to really believing in themselves and having a lot of courage and self-confidence to tackle leadership issues. That's number one. Number two, I also give the same survey that evaluates these leadership styles to fellow physicians, colleague nurses, and are you ready for this? Spouses of physicians. 
So they report on the people who are going through this class. And what I've seen is there's an improvement among the doctors. There's a huge improvement among the nurses and their view of the doctors. And there's even bigger improvement among the spouses and how they see their wife or husband, who is a physician, improve in leadership style. That's all good. The other thing that's interesting, I also did some measurements on burnout. And after this six-month course, what I'm seeing is statistic or uh, assessment across the board, analysis across the board, where scores on burnout are decreasing. So in other words, during this six-month course, there is a change in view toward how they see their profession and their contributions to it. Now, I didn't expect to see it as much as it is, and I've still got some analysis to do, but it appears that if you focus on helping folks be a better leader and being more courageous in terms of how they approach their profession, they have less frustrations. Go figure. So, I mean, all of these things are really important. And I think going back to what you said, yes, we are at the very start of this and maybe doing something significant for for the medical profession, which is a key societal contributor. I like that I like you just went with the simple. It is all good. All and that's, that is correct. This is, this is the right work. And it's gratifying to hear that the results bear that out. You and I could go on and on and on because I have so many more things that I want to dip into with you. And I, we're going to have to have you back and we're going to, we're going to keep working on this together. This has been very, very special. And there's some things here that I think all of us can internalize and think about. And I, I think it's just wonderful that we have so many people who are not just engaged with helping physicians, but want their healthcare to be the best that it can be and are willing to contribute. So thank you for doing that work. The book is Growing Physician Leaders. It's available anywhere. How else do people find you? <laughs> Hang out in my neighborhood. I Watch me on CNN. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> they, so your Twitter can, feed is uh, a great one. People at Mark Hurtling or, uh, you know, they can get their an email from the book or from the publisher that's published the book. And, and I've done a lot of speaking at different healthcare organizations and in physician groups. And I'd love to come out and share what we're doing to anyone. Yeah, the Twitter feed at Mark Hurtling. That is definitely worth following. I really enjoy it as well. Yeah, you got to be careful on that, though. I talk a lot of politics on that. (laughs) (laughs) That's fine. That's fine, too. Listen, thank you so much for the time. This has been really, really special. Really appreciate you coming and sharing your expertise. You're welcome back anytime. And great to have you a part of the project. Great to have you a part of the work that we're doing to, to improve healthcare, to improve leadership, and to move the needle in a really important way. Mark, it was a true pleasure, and I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Explore the Space. Visit us on our website, explorethespaceshow.com, and please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at ETS Show, and you can email Dr. Shapiro by writing to mark at explorethespaceshow.com.